Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Diane Valier's mysteries are for women who like shoes, clues, and clothes. Think the devil wears Prada with an amateur sleuth on staff. But that's not the only thing they have in common. They're also full of humour. Perhaps not so surprising for a writer who lives by one of Coco Chanel's favourite sayings, you live but once, you might as well be amusing. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Diane talks about how Doris Day movies brightened life after divorce and why binge watching TV helped make her a better writer. But before we talk to Diane, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Diane's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Diane. Hello there, Diane, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, look, we always like to just begin at the beginning, we writers. So was there a once upon a time moment when you realized that you really wanted to write fiction? And if you didn't achieve that goal, your life would be the poorer for it. And if so, what was the catalyst? Well, I... I have. I grew up loving children's mystery series, and I had a lo- for a long time wanted to try to write a children's mystery series like a Trixie Belden, but I didn't have any ideas. So it was more a general thought. And when I was working in retail, one day I had an idea for an adult woman who discovered the body of her boss dead on her first day at a new job. And I realized it was kind of like an adult version of a children's mystery series. And once that happened, it all kind of clicked. And that became, once I had that idea, then I was very driven to sit down and write it because it wasn't just this general thought cloud anymore. Yeah, it sounds like a slightly psychological situation. Did you secretly want to get rid of your boss? <laughs> well, you know, my my first victim was someone I worked for. So, <laughs> so there was a little bit of uh, working through aggression, I guess. <laughs> You've now got five series, and they range from cozy mysteries to comedy and chick lit. I wonder, I guess that's going to encapsulate quite a long story in a fairly short frame, but how did you evolve to five different series? Well, I started writing about the former fashion buyer turned amateur sleuth, and that came very naturally to me because I, my background is in fashion and in retail. And so I I kind of always felt like those were the books I could write. But when I got the idea for Madison Knight, who is the interior decorator who's modeled her life after Doris Day, that was those were the books I didn't know I could write. And I think I, I had grown up a little bit in that time. I had gone through a little bit emotionally in my own personal life, and that was reflected in the series. And it allowed me to see that different parts throughout my life, I connected to different emotions of a character. So when I came up with an idea for someone, I could then identify with a time in my life and say, this is what 
this character is feeling and what she's working through. And that's what allowed me to kind of keep coming up with different people and uh, keep them separate. Sure. Now, perhaps if we mentioned that that first series was the Samantha Kid style and era series, and you've now done seven books in that. Yes. When they were initially launched, they were described as Devil Wears Prada Meets Murder, she wrote, which is quite a neat little way of um, of encapsulating them, isn't it? Yes, it is. I'm delighted with that quote. <laughs> and then Madison, she's 47. I, I just happened to notice that, perhaps a little bit older than some of the heroines of these types of series. And she is going through a stage of life that is relevant for a, a midlife person. So I found that also very interesting. And I love the the Doris Day aspect of it too. It sounds like you are pretty much a Doris Day fan yourself or you wouldn't have been able to write it quite so um, convincingly. Is that right? It is true. Now, here's what's interesting about that. I I never saw my first, I didn't see my first Doris Day movie until I was 39. And I was going through my divorce and I was kind of in a very emotionally isolated place myself. So I was watching a lot of Hitchcock movies, and the first Doris Day movie I ever saw was The Man Who Knew Too Much. And as soon as I saw that movie, I thought, wow, Doris Day is nothing like what I always thought she would be like. I thought she was going to be very, very kind of fluffy and saccharine sweet, and she wasn't. She was this multidimensional character, and I just really liked her, so I immediately rented all the movies that I could get my hands on, and I just fell in love with her. And I thought, that. so I think that's kind of where the Madison Knight books came from, that there was that emotional darkness that I was in, and isolation, but there was this bright and happiness that was happening as I was discovering this whole world of Doris Day movies. And I think that's what kind of fused together to create that Madison Knight world. Sure. It's really interesting to me that you, you, you've described it this way, because you do sense with the books that they, they each sort of do treat a slightly different aspect of life. And I wonder when you're writing them, are you you're adopting different persona as you write them? I'm kind of putting on the whatever the, the emotional core part of each character is, is what I'm sort of putting on as I'm writing the book. And I always try to have each character grow in each book. So Samantha will grow from book to book, but her growth is very different from Madison's growth from book to book. So I always have to find what is it that makes that character who they are and what would be the next thing for them to develop so that, so that they're always constantly learning and maturing and changing from book to book. Sure. Now, you've got what's a, quite a coveted position now. You're both indie published and traditionally published. And I, I love the name of your publishing press. It's the Polyester Press. And yes. Actually, <laughs> I don't know whether that relates, but the, the name of your material witness series heroine <laughs> is Polyester Monroe. I thought that's a wonderful name. Um, yes. <laughs> I took a lot of heat for that. A lot of um, fabric people and sewers said, why did you have to name her polyester? Couldn't you have picked a better fabric? And I thought, but that's just the key. Someone who grows up with the name polyester is going to have gone through a certain amount of ribbing in her life. So it worked very well. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely. But how did you come, which came first, the indie publishing or the traditional? And how did that develop? The indie publishing came first. I had been trying to sign with an agent for a couple of years and while I was on that, what I what felt like a hamster wheel, you know, you feel like you're running and trying to get someplace, but you're actually not getting any place. I was on the side, I was hearing about indie publishing. 
And I got to a point where I was really kind of excited about the idea of taking control and trying to do it myself and trying to uh, forge a whole different path than what I had been anticipating. And what turned out to be the case was doing that opened up the doors for traditional publishing for me. Because when I started indie publishing, my goal was I didn't want to look back and regret having indie published. I thought everything I thought I was going to get from traditional publishing, I want to try to provide for myself. So I asked other authors if they would give me quotes for the book. And one author took my book and gave it to her editor at a traditional publishing house and said, you've never seen this book. It's going to be self-published. I think you should read it. It would fit your line. And the publisher wrote to me and asked if I would consider pulling my plans to self-publish and rewrite the book for them. And at that point, I said, no, I'm really happy with what it is, but I do have other ideas. And that's how I got a foot in the door. That was with Penguin Random House, and that's where the Material Witness series came from. Great. Yes. Yeah, so, and Penguin, man, that's that's one of the top houses to be with. So you really have sort of smashed it on both levels. And you, your books have also been nominated for awards um, in, in a number of categories, haven't they? Yes. I, I seem to, people seem to like the humour of them. The Lefty yeah. Award, <laughs> a couple yeah, different series yeah, has gotten yeah. that, yes. <laughs> yes, that they are all funny. And, and that brings me to one of your favourite quotes I saw online was from Coco Chanel, if you live but once, you might as well be amusing. You, you really do seem to live by that yourself. Well, I think it's so easy for us all to take ourselves very, very seriously. And, and I'm, I'm as big of a victim of this as anybody, but I do think that quote is great because it does kind of tell you, have fun, you know, whatever it is you're doing, try to find a way to have fun with it. Try to make, find the enjoyable part of anything. And when something's really awful, just kind of, you know, you know, it's temporary and focus on other things if you can. Sure. But yes, sure. just, you know, surround yourself with color and, and yes, always try to be amusing, even if you're just amusing yourself. <laughs> so give us an idea of the time frame here. Um, when you started writing Samantha Kid, how how many books did you self-publish and then when did you start introducing Madison Knight? I so I published the first Samantha Kid book and then the next book that I published was the first Madison Knight book. I wasn't sure I was going to do that, but I really I felt very strongly about both characters and I so I didn't want one set of characters to be more important than the other. So I was alternating the series. What happened was um, a small press in Texas, Henry Press, was interested in acquiring Madison Knight. And that was right around when Penguin approached me about the material witness books. And I thought, I don't know how much I can do on my own. So it made sense to turn Madison over to Henry Press. So like that kind of was when I diversified. So at that point, I kept Samantha. And I really just love having the complete control over that series. And I, I do love the indie path for that reason. But it also took a big burden of work off of my plate to have partners at Henry Press and at Penguin Random House to get those other books out as well. Sure. So what does a yearly schedule for you look like at the moment? I tr What I try to do, I'm trying to write um, five to six books a year. That's a lofty goal. So I don't, it's January, so I don't know if I'm going to hit that goal, but I'm certainly going to try. Um, that doesn't mean they're all going to come out this year. Some of them are going to come out ne early next year, but I always have to work pretty far ahead of the game. And traditional publishing is definitely further out than self-publishing. Yeah, yeah. 
does that mean basically one book for each series? Is that is that how it works? It will be um, pretty much yes. There's a new series I want to start later in this year if I can, and uh, I'm not writing any additional material witness books right now. Although I have an idea for another one, but I don't have any. I'm not planning on writing that this right away. So that's kind of on the back burner. Tell us about your latest one, Sylvia in Outer Space. That sounds, you know, out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had the idea for that a couple of years ago, just setting, writing a cozy mystery that was set in outer space. And this was another one of those things where I just, I think it just felt just so unusual that I thought it won't feel like I'm writing the same book that I've already written over and over. That's something I always worry about is I don't want to, I don't want one series to start to sound like another series. So putting her in outer space felt fresh. And I'm, I am a fan of Star Trek. Um, and I'm a fan of a lot of Jerry Anderson outer space things. So I didn't have a hook for it. And it kind of, again, it was something that just was in the back of my mind for a while until one day I woke up and I thought she is the uniform manager and soon as that clicked, I realized that was kind of that, I always have that little clothing tie-in somehow with each book. And soon as I knew she could manage uniforms, I thought, well, that's the tie-in with the clothes. That's what they wear. So she's in charge of that. And she then will pick up clues based on what markings people have on their uniforms and what rank they are and things like that. So that all fell into place and was so much fun to write. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because your tagline on your website is, for women who like shoes, clues, and clothes. And that passion really does shine through in your work. I imagine that when you were working for your retailer, you were a very good buyer because you can tell that you just adore fashion. And and I gather that one of the other little factoids that I picked up looking at various websites was that one of your heroes is Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, and that you were the person, the buyer, who placed the first ever order for Spanx in your store. That's a pretty nice little accolade to be able to, to that, play. That was, that was very nice accolade. I was new in the job uh, as hosiery and lingerie buyer. And I had appointments with just tons of everybody wanted to come and show, my, show me their samples and see if they could get me to write an order. And I, I remember when she came in and I had said no to so many different people just looking at product. And she was nervous and she pulled her sample out of her backpack. And I, she finally, I think she, when she tells the story now, she says she felt like she was losing me. So she actually said, can we go to the restroom and I'll give you a before and after demonstration. And she changed into and out of them. And, you know, I, I thought it was a great idea. I called my boss. My boss said, I don't get it, but if you think it's a good idea, go ahead and write an order. So I wrote the order and we sold out for very quickly and it just snowballed from there. And, you know, we had it exclusively for, I think, about six months at my retailer. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Have you got any other favorite designers that have featured in your work? Well, I love one of the things I love about writing the Samantha Kid books is she is the most fashion-y of the people of the characters that I write. So I actually get to dress her in all sorts of wacky things that if I had if I were her age and her build I would want to wear and had money to blow. So I can I can have her wear vintage Stephen Sprouse from the 80s and I can put her in Poochie and I can put her in camouflage pants in one book and and all different things. And sometimes I will actually go online shopping to find outfits that I will then describe her in in the book. But I, I don't 
I try not to drop too many designer labels because I want it to be more about the actual clothes than about the label in the clothes. So sure, yeah, I do. I do make that distinction a little bit. Perhaps now, in more general terms, moving away from specific books, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to your success? I think probably always driving toward whatever the next thing is. So constantly trying, never being satisfied with just it's done and it's over, but always saying, okay, well, that was good. How can I make it better? How can I improve? What else can I learn? And constantly trying to improve because I think it's actually, no, probably the number one thing was not, not waiting to be perfect. That's what I would say there. I think it's so easy to get hung up on trying to be perfect and trying to have a perfect book and it will never be perfect. Yeah. You will always want to edit it. You will always open to a random page and find a word in there that that is missing a letter or you didn't notice and you want to change. So I think being able to let go and and publish that first book, even though I had I did have to go back and I have made some changes, um, that was a big thing. Just being able to say, just move forward is more important than standing still. Sure, sure. You've blogged very amusingly and, and I might add, intelligently about binge-watching TV and what it's taught you about story structure. Mm-hmm. And to, to just get a little bit serious for a moment, a lot of people are saying that the initiative now has passed to TV instead of books in setting the cultural agenda. And that piece that you wrote really made me think, wow, I really think Diane understands that that uh, process. Well, I... I find that binge watching on TV helps, like like you mentioned, what I said was helping understand story structure, but it kind of pulls you out of your own work a little bit and you start to internalize a pace and you start to see conflict and you start to, you, you get engaged in these characters and you might not know immediately why you're engaged or why you like them or don't. And But as you start to study it, you start to become more drawn into it. And I think that can translate very well into books. Once you understand that, you can translate it. And I suppose the episodic TV feeds quite well into the series thing too, doesn't it? It does. Because you're, yeah, you've got the same characters, but you're developing new things. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's the fun and the challenge of writing a series is that each book has its own conflict and the conflict gets resolved at the end of the book. But then if you're going to write another book in that series, you have to come up with a new conflict because if the character is still dealing with the same conflict... I think readers would get bored and say, oh, we're still here. (laughs) So I think it's important to always kind of try to find, well, what would be the next thing that this character is conflicted by? Sure, sure. And do you think that the the whole thing of binge watching on TV and Netflix and those um, networks has encouraged binge reading of e-books? Is is that a whole technical resolution that's taking place? I think a little bit, yes. I know I do. At the end of uh, Thanksgiving every year, I start binge reading a series. I pick a series. It, my only rule is it has to have at least 15 books in the series. And I just start with book one and I read until I've read all the books in that series. And I've been doing this for a couple of years now. And there's something, it, again, educational without actually having to study it that you start to realize when you're reading the same characters over and over again, you're getting, you're just completely in their world and enjoying their world, but you're getting to see how an author can keep something fresh for 15 different books. 
And it is very much the same as binge watching a TV show where as soon as an episode ends, you want to go ahead and start the next one. So I think there is something about being able to do that that's very attractive. Yeah, and that brings us very nicely into talking about Diane as reader. So tell me a little about your reading in the past. First of all, a little bit earlier in your, in your career, but I'd love to hear about these ones that have got 15 <laughs> books that you've been binge reading the last couple of years. Well, I will, going back, like I said, I used to love reading children's mystery series when I was growing up. So Nancy Drew, Connie Blair, the Three Investigators and Trixie Belden were really my favorites. I also loved to read Judy Bloom, and I loved yes. to read a series called Sweet Dreams Romances and uh, Beverly Cleary. So kind of between all of that, I think that's really where my voice came from, that you had a lot of those coming-of-age stories, but then you also had a lot of mysteries and adventures. So that's really how I wanted to put together female amateur sleuths solving crimes, but also having like personal lives that had some, a bit of a mess or things that they were trying to navigate. So I had, um, I had a period of time when I wasn't reading that much. It was after college, it was, uh, early in my working career. And I don't know why, because I always loved reading, but I got away from it. And when I moved from Pennsylvania to Texas, I was very much a fish out of water And I discovered that the public library was about a block away from where I worked. So I went on my lunch break, and that was the day I discovered Janet Ivanovich. And it was, I think it was book three in the Stephanie Plum series was what I picked up that day. And I discovered Lawrence Block's Burglar Who series. And I found all these other kind of cozy mysteries, Sarah Strohmeyer, and these humorous mystery series. And that was uh, just a big light bulb went off over my head because that was the day that I thought, this is what I wanted to do, but it's a grown-up version. And from that moment is when I got the idea for Samantha Kid. So from then, I've just really enjoyed reading humorous mysteries. I do like thrillers. I do like some darker things, but I really definitely like the humorous mysteries the most. And then I yeah. do like women's yeah. fiction and chick lit as well, and biography and memoir. So I do read kind of widely. Yes, yeah. So the current, the series that you've been reading in the last couple of years, where you've deliberately picked 50, a 15 book series on Thanksgiving Day, what have those ones I been? started with Janet Ivanovich because I hadn't, it had been a long time since I read the early ones. And I, so I went back to the very beginning and I read those straight through. The next year I did Sue Grafton. The next year yes. I did Sarah Paretsky. And this year I'm doing uh-huh. Cleo Coyle, the Coffee House Mysteries. Oh, right. Yes, yes. I've seen those. I haven't read any of them yet, but yeah, they have come across my uh, sort of (laughs) radar. Yeah. So, oh, that's fantastic. So um, the Stephanie Plum ones are a little bit less cozy, aren't they? They're they're slightly more on the crime thriller edge of Uh, things. Is that right? The the Janet Ivanovich, Stephanie Plum ones are humorous. They're all, the first three are less cozy-ish, but Janet Ivanovich is the most humorous of them. I would say Sue Grafton and Sarah Poretsky are both on the slightly darker side. Um, so so they're not really humorous, but they're PI. So they really kind of deliver on that person who's out there, whose profession it is to dig into these cases. And, and there's something very fun about that because I write about an amateur, but I really do like reading these characters who know what they're doing and have the resources to find things out instead of sometimes bumbling along with just sheer determination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> mystery and thriller, that, that broader category, are extremely popular these days, just second behind the romance. Do your readers tell you why they like reading mysteries? I know a lot of people really enjoy the puzzle. You know, mysteries have that puzzle to solve. And I think a lot of mystery readers have that analytical part of their mind, and they like to try to figure out who who done it. They like that that trying to beat the amateur sleuth at figuring out who committed the crime. And I, I know some people like having romance in their mysteries. Some people don't like having romance in their mysteries. I personally, when I'm reading, I do enjoy that. So I try to put that into the books that I'm writing because I think that represents my characters' lives. Sure. It gives, it gives the emotional content, doesn't it? Um, right. Right. And sometimes because it, things don't always go well, it can lend itself to the humor. Yeah. So that, because it's, you know, if you're writing a murder mystery, you can't really make the murder part funny. That, that doesn't work. So you need other elements in the character's life that can be funny to kind of lift the story up so that when you go into the, the murder and the crime part, which is naturally dark, you have these ups and downs, these emotional peaks and valleys. But the romance is more of the subplot, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. Circling around perhaps to from the beginning to the end, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? I think I was very impatient for a long time. I was in a hurry and I wanted to, I wanted to get where I wanted to be fast and I got frustrated. Now I'm glad I learned as much as I did along the way there, but I think that was kind of, it was good that I learned a lot along the way because it made me understand the process more when I, because I decided to try to do it myself. So I think it would be great to have had that time and just really appreciate that time for the education that it was. That's kind of probably the main thing I would tell myself if I could go back and tap myself on the shoulder, I would say, you know, don't be in such a rush. It's all going to work out. Sure. You know, it's not always going to be easy, but, you know. You could have saved yourself some frustration if you'd. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for Diane, the writer? What projects do you have under development? Well, right now I'm writing the sixth Madison Knight book. The fifth one comes out in February, but I'm writing the sixth one. Um, after that, I have Samantha Kid number eight, and after that, I'll have uh, Sylvia Stryker on the Moon number two. Oh gosh! So those are kind of those are kind of like the immediate things I'm working on, and then I have a couple brand new things that I'm hoping to develop by the end of the year. And tell me, just that thing about outlining and pantsing. How much of a planner or a plotter are you, and how much are you a <laughs> pantser? <laughs> I'm a complete pantser. Oh, are you complete pantser? I am. I tried to plot a book in, I guess it was December. I took a course on it. I thought, you know, everybody says outlining and plotting is a way to do this. And maybe I'm just not being smart and I should learn and I should try this. I tried to do it and I froze up and I just, I couldn't proceed with the book because I just kept thinking, what if this is wrong? So I set that book aside and I started writing Madison number six that I'm working on now. And I sat down that first day. I didn't have any idea what was going to happen. I knew the title. So I didn't know what else was going to happen. I had a general idea and I just sat down and I wrote and I wrote like 10 pages. And I thought, yeah, I don't think I'm going to try to plot anymore. That didn't seem to work for me. So I am very much a pantser. It's interesting, isn't it, that individual thing? Because you'd think the the logical thing would be with a mystery where you have to have 
careful sort of plotting points or, or yes. that, that you'd need to do a bit of that outlining. But obviously not. There's a subconscious thing that's happening there that you've probably written so many now that you're very, very familiar with um, what, what needs to happen. Well, I think I, I do rely on a spreadsheet where I log in my word count every day. So I know, and I know about how long I want the book to be. So I know when I'm getting to the 25% mark and I know when I'm getting to the halfway point. So I know at those percentages that something big has to happen. Yeah. So as I'm writing and I see that I'm coming up to that part of the manuscript, I don't know what it is that's going to happen, but I know something's going to happen. And sometimes the thought will pop into my head before it's almost like it happens in a flash and I surprise myself. And when that happens, I get excited because then I didn't see it coming and it just was a out of left field and I write it quickly. And it, it's very, I figure if it's exciting to me, then it, it'll be exciting to a reader. I totally agree. I think that if it's fresh and exciting to you, that is communicated on the page. So yeah, yes. that's great. So Diane, we are coming to the end now. So can you tell us where can readers find you online? I feel like I'm everywhere online. I'm definitely, I, I have a newsletter I send out weekly on Sundays. It's called The Weekly Diva. And um, I'm also on Facebook. I'm a little on Twitter, not a ton on Twitter. And I do put videos up on YouTube for my books. So that's kind of the videos are my new thing that I've been trying to do. Some story behind the story types of things. Right. And you you have quite a bit of free material and gifts that you give away online too, don't you? I try to. I try to always treat readers well because readers, you know, if, if there were no readers, there wouldn't be a need for books. Do you find that people want to communicate? I do. I um, I wasn't sure if they were going to or not when I started sending out the newsletter and, I, and I've made some wonderful relationships and friendships with people who write back to me and yeah, I, it's great. It makes the world feel a little less small, I mean a little less big because we, um, you know, we're scattered all over the place, but we all share this enjoyment this of mysteries so I, I do enjoy that part yeah and writing can be an isolating job can't it so very much so yes so that interaction helps pull me a little bit out of that world yeah yeah do you have people suggesting developments for your characters what they'd like to see happening next I have not had that much of that every once in a while someone will say something toss something a line out there saying oh well in your next book she could do this it's usually not a mystery. It's usually some tiny little thing that it, with Madison because she does um, mid-century decorating and she often finds things at thrift shops. People will say, oh, she should find something on a street corner or something like that. But it doesn't ever have anything to do with the actual book. So I like the fact that they've gotten into the lives of the characters more. Yeah, yeah. Also, it's always interesting to follow what's happening or not happening with the romance. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Is she going to end up with him or isn't she? That <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just when I, you think I've made a decision for one of my characters, I still reserve the right to change their mind. Yeah. <laughs> I've noticed, yes. Well, look, it's been wonderful talking to you today. We'll certainly have all of the details for where you can be found online on the show notes that'll, that'll go up with this episode. So, There'll be a transcript of our conversation with links to all of the things we've been talking about. It's wonderful to have had a chance to chat. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jenny. This was really a lot of fun. Thank you, Deb. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. 
And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.